Hey everyone, real quick, just a bit of a trigger warning. There are going to be some sensitive topics and uncomfortable words in this episode. We are still talking about movies, but of course, in this political climate and the world we live in today, there are some difficult opinions and difficult people out there, and we are going to be talking about this, so uh, just letting you know, just in case anyone wants to to listen with caution. And with that, welcome to Value West Cinemas. I'm your host, Aaron, and today I am joined by Tara. What's up, guys? We're very chipper for this topic today. I mean, I don't know if chipper is the right word, but oh, okay. we're... Uh, Ah, eager isn't the right word. That's, def- yeah, that's eager, definitely eager, not the right word. Eager um, sounds horrible, man. We sound like bloodthirsty ghouls at that cautious. point. Cautious. Dude, it's early and I've had a little bit of caffeine today. So do you want to actually use the words? The words? Yeah. When you, you mentioned there was a trigger warning, do you want to actually mention the words for this? Oh, no. I mean, we'll get into it as we get into it. There might be something here that could upset you. We're not going to tell you what it is. Well, just they're, they're going to see the title of the episode. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm just saying. That's like every time you try and find a recipe online and it's like 10 minutes okay. of discussing stuff. When you look up a recipe, why does it have to tell you a whole story about how their grandma used to make it or whatever? Just give me the recipe. That's what I'm saying. But- okay. This is the abortion episode. And we are still talking about movies today, okay? This isn't just us soapboxing. We are going to talk about films. And the topic today because we do have our list and our red pens ready, as always. Our topic today is movies with unwanted children. Some of these movies aren't about abortion, but they do... They do have abortion as a side plot or as a side theme. Some of them to an extreme with horror, and some are true stories. And so there's a wide variety here. We're probably the only people in history to compare a Wes Craven movie to a Mike Lee movie. Tara's giving me a blank look. We'll get into it. Uh, again, I, I know some directors. I don't know all of these guys you're dropping. It's like listen, me listening to like a sports cast radio. And I'm like, yeah, that dude played sports better than the other guy did sports. Yeah. Today's movies are Vera Drake, The People Under the Stairs, Gosnell, Dirty Dancing, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Shazam, AI Artificial Intelligence, Juno, and Flowers in the Attic. It's a good mix of films right here. It's a very odd mix. And I mean, the list could have been longer probably, but these are just... Well, the problem is is that when you get into Unwanted Children, I did have a few other movies on here like... Harry Potter. Harry Potter. <laughs> that and, doesn't really fit with the theme, And though. Annie. That doesn't really fit with what's going on in the United States today. Like, that's not the point, really. And, well, in Annie's case, she did get adopted by a rich dude, and then her problems are all over, so... Yeah, yeah. You know. When Harry Potter discovers he's a wizard. But uh, it's not really the same thing as what we're trying to get into today. So we're trying to talk about movies that have a more direct correlation to today. Even though there is an extreme, like People Under the Stairs, obviously, that's not quite the same thing. But you do still have some horrible people in it who don't want their kids. So there you go. We'll talk about it. So Tara, it's a little weird. I can't put my finger on why we came up with this episode topic because I just suddenly thought like, hey, we should do movies with abortions in them. And for some reason, you had the same idea at the same time. And I have no idea why. Like, what could have possibly made both of us think at the same time? Like, hey, these are some movies we should talk about. Like, it's weird, right? It's it's so unusual. I don't know. I think our muse kind of visited us at the same time and thought, you know, instead of like dinosaurs or dragons or something really fun... I just don't know. It's like something just came to us both at once, like the lightning strike. Yeah, it's so weird. Like I, I, I don't know why I would have ever come up with this, but suddenly it's just out of nowhere. Like, hey, this is a topic. I'm wondering if people might be interested in this for some reason. Like, I mean, I watch the news sometimes, you know, and it's Who mostly the news. Yeah, I mean, it's mostly positive stuff. Like, I don't really see anything on the news to alarm me in any way. 
right? When yeah. you watch the news, it's you, you feel better afterwards, right? You don't feel like anything in your life is being taken away from you, right? No, nothing in the world is going to get any worse because yeah, everything it's looks great. awesome. America and- is so great right now. Like everyone has every freedom. You can marry whoever you want. And no one cares. You can get any medication you medication. want. Medication? You have complete autonomy over your body, Tara. It's is, amazing. It is truly amazing. Think about how horrible things were like back in the 50s or the 60s, like when women couldn't even have credit cards. When you, you can't see, get a passport without your husband's approval or a bank account. I mean, you watch something like The Handmaid's Tale and you're like, man, that could never happen here. And That's now it's a documentary. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, 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 I tried to keep going with the sarcasm. I tried. Sarcasm aside, I don't know how deep we'll necessarily get into this because I'm not worried about alienating my listeners. If you've listened to the show, you probably get a feel for where Tara and I kind of land on topics. But also, too, this isn't a huge show, so there's not <laughs> there's not a great well, risk in offending, I you mean, know, a couple people who listen, right? I will decide in the edit exactly how much of this we keep. I'm not too sure how much we'll really dive into politics necessarily. I don't like labels, and until America may or may not have elected a sentient orange crouton who is completely unqualified and openly openly admitted to sexual assault. (laughs) Until that may or may not have happened, I never paid attention to labels. And I'm not being sarcastic or hyperbolic at all. I just didn't pay attention. I didn't know which political party the presidents belonged to. I really couldn't even tell you the difference between a liberal and a conservative. I just didn't pay attention to that. So when you say you weren't watching the news, you mean you haven't been watching the news for like 40 years or something like that? Because even I don't watch the news that often, but I still kind of pay vague attention in the same way that when your kid talks to you about something on, you know, Paw Patrol, you know vaguely what's going on. I see news stories online, sure. But as far as watching the news, once it became essentially talking head media, that's what I call it. News news, like real genuine news usually doesn't exist. Most of the time when people talk about the news... They're saying a program where it's just a person's face talking at the audience, and there's always an opinion. If there's an opinion, it's not news anymore. And you can see that when you pay attention to headlines, too. You can see what the slant is. You can usually sort of imply the headline should tell you exactly everything you need to know, and the body of the article should support it. If you have to click on a headline to understand what they're talking about, it's not news. They're clickbaiting you. And it's the same thing with television media, television news. I am a media guy. I love the media. But... News is so difficult to understand nowadays as far as what's real and what's opinion. What's Even alternative facts. And we're going down the wrong path. Yeah, I'm really not say, what in I, the past not, 40 years, you should have picked up like some vague words like conservative versus liberal. I just didn't pay attention to labels because my whole thing is that, and it's become so much worse, the us versus them idea mm-hmm. where Republicans and Democrats, uh, the thing is there's no way that every person in this country is either one or another. We all have a mixture of ideas, and the us versus them idea has been really pushed really hard since 2016. In order to like something, you have to hate something else. That's not reality. You can disagree and still get along. You can have a discussion. You can like one party without hating the other one. And part of the issue with television news or talking head media is that rational middle thought doesn't get attention. Because they want ratings. The news used to be about informing the public, kind of like the police used to be about protecting and serving, not enforcing. There's a a difference in that perspective. I will say it's like pro-choice versus uh, anti-choice at that point, though. Television programs want ratings. Websites want clicks. And so they're going to say the worst things, the things that will either scare you or piss you off in order to get that attention. And you're losing the perspective of reality when you do that because I choose to believe, I hope, that there are a great many people 
who can exist in the middle, who can agree a little bit with one side and a little bit with the other. It doesn't have to be this rah, 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 screw you, I'm on this side about everything. Why can't we just talk about things? At the end of the day, most of us want the same thing. We want tomorrow to be better than today. Right. But for a lot of people, that's not enough. They want tomorrow to be worse for certain other people. And their perspective isn't that they want it to be worse. It's just that they're trying to grasp this great again that they're thinking of as the super prosperous 50s or super prosperous 80s. But we have seen the results of those eras. Like, yeah, yeah, I remember the 80s. The 80s were great. And we eventually got the housing crisis because of it, you know? (laughs) Yeah, but I don't remember the 80s being that great. But so much of what's going on now, like with Roe versus Wade being overturned. Oh, that was what inspired us. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I dropped the sarcasm. Sorry, Tara. Um, (laughs) So with it being overturned, and all these other things that are being proposed that are happening, so much is about not making our lives better. They say, keep America great, which is a bunch of nonsense because they mean for, you know, white males. Mm -hmm. But so much of what is being proposed is just taking away living. Like, gay marriage, that's just people living. Who cares who anyone else wants to marry? Like, that has nothing to do with you. Don't say morality, because what morality? The reality of that is they're probably going to go down the road of religion. That's what's going to determine, like, oh, that's why gays can't get married. Well, first of all, separation of church and state. Just let people live their lives. Who cares? You want to make everything great? Healthcare. Give us healthcare, please. (laughs) I I think to go back to the idea that I want a better tomorrow for everyone versus I want a better tomorrow for me and mine and screw anyone else. A lot of people look at these rights as because you have the rights that I do, that's diminishing what I have. Or they look at rights as a pie of pizza. The more rights someone else has, the less rights you have, even if it's the same rights for the same people. Right. Yeah. It doesn't make you less special because everyone else has the same opportunities. I just don't get why we can't make life better. Most of these things that I see coming through aren't about making life better. They are making life better for certain people. Here, let me put it this way. The short and simple point is just help people. That's it. But that doesn't work for the us versus them mentality. When you look at any problem in America, or I guess in any capitalistic society, but we're talking about in America specifically, you don't look at who will benefit from the problem being solved. Education, housing, the lack of baby formula. You look at who profits from the problem. Mm -hmm. For-profit prisons, for example. For-profit hospitals. Did you know that an ambulance is not a civil service, like fire or police? That is precisely why I know a lot of people that when they need an ambulance, they call Uber. Because it is cheaper to get to a hospital and not have a $6,000 bill because you needed a ride to the hospital. Yeah, how are ambulances not a civil service like police and fire? I don't understand that. That makes zero sense to me. Again, you have to look at who's benefiting and profiting from the problem, not who's going to be helped by the problem being solved. Yeah. Oh, that's depressing. So, Roe v. Wade. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get to the movies. So, yeah, so let's get to the movies. Um, First, let's talk about Flowers in the Attic. This is the 1987 movie, not the more recent television film. The movie has Louise Fletcher from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Christy Swanson from Twitter. (laughs) Sorry, uh, Christy Swanson from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Who is she in the movie? Is she the older daughter? Yeah, yeah, she's the older daughter. Flowers in the Attic is about four siblings. There are two teenagers and two young twins. Their father dies, and so their mom takes them to move in with their grandma under the condition that they have to be hidden in an attic because their grandpa is sick and their grandma doesn't want any kids around. And they end up being stuck in this attic for years. The movie is based on the book by V.C. Andrews, who wrote a whole series of these, and they were incredibly successful. So much, actually, to the point where the movie poster has the silhouette of a gothic mansion, and in the middle of the poster is the cover of the paperback book. They straight up put the (laughs) picture 
of the book cover in the middle of the movie poster. I can't think of any other time that's ever been done. That's how huge this book was. Flowers in the Attic was enormous. I can't think of any other book besides like what, maybe the first Harry Potter book that came out that was that big? Well, I mean, there's there's a different scale to book success. But either way, yeah. it was significantly huge. And I mean, I read it in the second grade. <laughs> uh, okay, we're going down the path as to what messed you up so bad in the first right, place. Right, right, right. I knew you were going to laugh about that. Reading Misery in the fifth grade. I was reading like the Tommyknockers in the fifth yeah. grade, not about someone getting their foot chopped off. Yeah, to sort of uh, elaborate on Tara's reaction, Flowers in the Attic, in addition to the plot that I described, deals a lot with incest, and the unwanted kids are these four children that are stuck in the attic. It turns out that their dad who died was their mom's uncle. Their mom married her uncle. So they are the children of incest. And as they are in this attic for years, the two teenagers, a male and a female, and they all have C names like Chris, Kathy, Carrie. And Corey. Corey. And then Corinne is the mom. The two teenagers start having, at least in the book, a sexual relationship. And in fact, the brother actually rapes the sister in the book. Yeah. In the movie, though, I think the relationship is only sort of implied because the grandma opens the door and sees them laying in a bed together. But since they're all trapped in this attic, it may or may not have been sexual. I read that there are cutscenes from the movie that mm. did elaborate on their relationship and, and the nudity, too. And there were sex scenes. They cut stuff. They wanted a PG-13, which is weird because here's a comparison, actually. Fifty Shades of Grey. Like, <laughs> yeah. think of how huge... Well, no, no, not... I'm not comparing, like, the quality of the naughty. I was going to say, go, don't go down that yeah, road. Yeah, no, no, no. Please that's not what I mean. But as far as the success of Fifty Shades... Think of that comparatively to the success of the Flowers in the Attic book, but also, too, a highly anticipated, potentially disturbing, naughty-ish movie. But Flowers in the Attic was PG-13. They didn't want to well, it was also get an R. children, so yeah. In the book, the two older siblings are like 14 and 12. And in the movie, they're played by actors who look much older. So it's like a 20-year-old and an 18-year-old playing a 15-year-old and a 14-year-old or whatever. They don't look like kids. They look like... Like when you watch Scream, they don't look like high schoolers. In the books, though, they start out at like 12 and 13, 14. When they're in the attic for, you know, a few years. I don't know if it was touched on in the movie or not. But the reason that grandpa or grandfather doesn't know about them is because the grandma knows, hey, if he sees these kids, he's going to just forgive everything the daughter did. That she ran away with her uncle and all this horrible stuff. We disowned her. He's going to love these grandkids because he's going to see them as beautiful angels. You think that the evil grandma is poisoning them because she's real mean, but it she's turns out the mom is poisoning. Yeah, she's terrible. But the mom is actually poisoning the kids because she will lose her inheritance. It's in her dad's will that she will lose the inheritance if she had any children with her uncle. So that's why the kids are hidden. The kids are hidden for that reason, but I don't know if grandma knows about that or not in the will. She does know that her husband, and this is again the books, because the movie I don't think touches too much on this, but the books, there's a lot more detail with grandma and grandpa that... He's able to change his will, and he dies Yeah, he while dies. the kids are in the attic, and that's when mom finds out about the will, but she keeps the kids locked up, and she does feed them arsenic on powdered donuts, because her thought is that I'll just keep them a little sick, but then the will is read, and she's like, okay, they gotta stay there forever. The last book in the series clarifies why the grandma was and the grandfather were so opposed to uncle and the daughter getting together. Well, besides the obvious reason. Well, because they're not <laughs> uncle and niece, they're half-brother, half-sister. Oh, geez. That makes them even more related? Yeah. So we're talking Game of Thrones-style Lannister, you know. Yeah, it's it's very complicated. <laughs> and going back to, you know, the topic of the show, these kids are not wanted overall. The mom 
chooses to live the high life. She marries. she dates and marries a really rich guy. She doesn't want the kids anymore. And the grandma doesn't want the kids either. So they're just basically locked up in this attic. Not to die, but I assume that's the expectation that that would happen. Like, what else would happen if they're locked in an attic for years? They find out that the kids are sneaking out of the attic. And so the grandma punishes them by not feeding them for like two weeks. Mm -hmm. And so the older teenage son has to feed his blood to the two little kids to keep them alive. There's a little kid drinking blood to live. The point is that as soon as mom finds out that if she's found to have kids at all, ever, she's out of the will, she loses everything. Yeah, and then she disappears pretty much because she's living the high life with her new husband and just wants to forget those four kids exist. Yeah, and when they confront her at her wedding, at least in the movie, it's her wedding, she denies that, that those are her kids. Speaking of the ending, real quick, going back to this as a film... The ending in the movie is not the same as the book nope. because they wanted a more exciting ending. And originally, one of the scripts for the movie was written by Wes Craven. In the movie, she's getting married to the rich guy. They confront her. She denies that those are her kids. And the mom ends up falling off a balcony and being hung by her own veil, her own wedding veil. <laughs> That's a little dark, but okay. Right. Evil must be punished. Yeah. So the mom is like hanging by her wedding veil off a balcony and the kids walk away and it's all dramatic and music starts playing. It's one of those 80s movies where, like in Die Hard, people are dead. And the heroes just walk away like everything's fine. There's so much paperwork. <laughs> I think it's important for us to emphasize, though, that everything we've said about this movie sounds way more exciting than the movie actually is. Yeah. Kind of like Fifty Shades again. Mm -hmm. Fifty Shades, I didn't read the book, but I can assume, based on its popularity, that the book is salacious and maybe exciting. The Fifty Shades movie is just a dull, boring, who cares nonsense. There's no naughtiness to the movie. Like, yeah, there's some sex scenes in it. But it is not titillating at all. It's so clinical almost. It is, especially when you have... <laughs> it just took me out. I was laughing so hard. Where it's got Christian Grey on one side and Anastasia on the other. And they're texting. And you can see the text messages on the screen as to what they're texting each other. Super exciting. I'm like, man, it's getting me so interested right now in when they're discussing a contract. A flowers in the attic. Well, it's very yeah. similar, right? Like, yes. It sounds so exciting with kids drinking blood and poisoning and, and incest and all these weird gothic melodrama moments that we're describing, but the movie it's is just slow. so dull. I think if they remade it today, it'd be a lot more... Well, but they did. They made a TV okay. movie, though, but even still, like you can only do so much on regular television. Yeah, I'm saying remake it... But make it rated R. <laughs> Sorry, Tara. I mean, it sounds like we're saying, we want to show the siblings banging. Like, that's not that's not <laughs> no, what we're saying. No, no, but no. Not at all. But I want to see the, the it's more... It's salacious. Make make it dark and depressing and weird. And scary. That's the whole point in part make of the Make our books. stomachs drop. How terrified, like, these kids are at some point when they realize we are not getting out of this attic. We are here until we die. Especially when the little boy twin dies. And the three kids are left in the attic going, what happened? There's so much dread in the book and in the movie, it's just kind of boring. The movie is slow and boring. But it was a great way for people to be introduced to the idea of what to do with kids you don't want anymore. <laughs> yeah, put them in an attic. Put them in an attic. Yeah, it was just so bland and lifeless because it takes place in this beautiful, amazing mansion. And you have Louise Fletcher from Cuckoo's Nest. It could have been so mean. Like, make us feel something. We don't need to necessarily see the really gross stuff, but... Make us feel something. I don't know if like a Wes Craven type or a Tim Burton type could have done this better, but they could have gone a more melodramatic direction. Manipulate us. Make us cry. Or they could have gone a sort of fantasy direction like A Little Princess or Secret Garden. Show us the world that these kids are escaping into, maybe in their heads. Have paper flowers turn into real flowers. Or they could have gone straight horror. Make this a nightmare. And they didn't do 
any of those. It just is so slow and boring. There's so much degradation and pain and terror in the book. In the movie, it's just kind of gloss over with, hey, here's some kids in an attic, and it's kind of bad, but, you know, it's it's there. I I almost want to say dreamy, but that sounds too complimentary. There's just nothing there. Kind of a blandness. bland. Yeah, there we go. And it should be so much more. Make it gross or make it mean or make it scary or something. Have a focus for the movie so we actually feel and understand what the characters are going through beyond they're trapped in an attic. But they also don't have stuff like smartphones or computers or TVs, really, so... That terrible moment in a movie where someone says, Hey, does anyone else have reception? Oh, God. Yeah, I hate that. I'm going to cross off Flowers in the Attic. I did like the book. The sequels were kind of iffy, especially Yeah, just read the more. first book. You don't, don't, don't read the rest of the books. There's like a thousand of them, because after V.C. Andrews died, somebody kept writing them under her name. For Flowers in the Attic, there's like six books, and the Garden of Shadows might be the only one worth reading because it details the grandma's life. Yeah, I don't... No, just, just the but first one. First one and last one, skip the ones in between. Wouldn't that be neat if they released a paperback movie tie-in of the book and it was the cover of the book, but in the middle was the picture of the poster of the movie? (laughs) You're stuck on the poster, dude. (laughs) It's so weird. Like, can you imagine if Jurassic Park came out and it was that T-Rex logo that we all know, and in the center was a picture of the paperback cover of the Jurassic Park book? It's so weird to me. The book was so big that the movie poster was the book. Yes. (laughs) The next one I'm crossing off is a movie that I did not want to include on this list, but Tara insisted, so I'm going to hand it off to you, Tara. What's that? AI. Now, why wouldn't you put this on the list, though? It's about an unwanted child. It's about a robot. That's a child. I would think Shazam would fit less than AI. Shazam at least has a specific subplot. The main character is motivated to find his mom who abandoned him. Well, same thing with Free Willy, but we didn't put that on the list. Yeah, but Shazam, he at least finds her. (laughs) We're not talking about Shazam yet, and and Free Willy's not on the list. Let's go back to AI. So AI is Spielberg's movie... It was originally a Kubrick movie, which I can see that. I can see that so well. Did he do the script at all, or did he do a script? I don't know what he wrote necessarily. I know Spielberg is credited for writing the screenplay. I can see Kubrick's hands all over this. But for me, part of the problem besides the movie's length, which we'll get into because it has one of those Return of the King endings. It never ends. AI, though, has that weird Spielberg sheen. Has a certain shine to it. And you just wish it was filmed with more grit because everything looks soft. And I know part of that is because they want people to look artificial because it's about a world where we have a whole bunch of mechanical beings called mechas. The main character is a little boy who's played very well by Haley Joel Osment. Like we, he does we only talk about this. the sixth sense, but he is really good. He doesn't blink at all the entire time he's on the screen. And he is adopted by a family because their own child is sick. And his AI develops to where it's not just emulated. Like he really loves this family. He is abandoned. And it's about his road adventure trying to find the blue fairy from Pinocchio to turn him into a real boy. Okay, can I talk about the movie that you say I insisted on? Oh, yeah, 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 sorry. And you've done nothing but talk about it. I'm sitting here like, Please, please do. I would say that AI is one of those movies where I think if Kubrick had kept it, it would have just been like amazing. Spielberg does his thing on it. I can defend Hook till I'm blue in the face, but AI, you're totally right on. There's way too much shine on certain parts. But you did miss a few things. David is not programmed to love David the family. David is the boy. He's not programmed to love the family. He's programmed to love one parent. The mom sits down with him and recites those words that's supposed to like awaken his consciousness or whatever. He's going to bond with one parent, not the family. He doesn't care sure, about the sure. dad. And he's obsessed with her forever. Yeah, he doesn't care about his brother who comes back. The alien ending was dumb. I guess well, they're Spielberg, not really aliens, though. Yeah, it's, they're not. But people like, thought they what, were. what, 5,000 years, 2,000 years in the future? But for the story, David is a very sad character, but he's probably the least interesting part in the movie. 
it's sad, but I also, if you watch the movie, not just from the point of view of the kid trying to become real so his mom loves him, which is a horrible message. The mom in this movie, we don't really see the dad too much. Oh, well, and actually, real quick, just to jump in, sorry. Um, as far as the theme of our episode today, the unwanted children, this family sick child wakes up, and so they don't want David anymore, and they just want to get rid of him because he's a product. They, they don't they, want to get rid of him to that keep way. Him. They try to keep him, but he almost drowns his son accidentally because even all the kids in the movie, besides David, know David is a robot. And they, they treat him like a him. robot. They they make fun of him. They do horrible things. But the thing is that no one else at the birthday party or the parents do anything to stop it because in their mind- he's just a robot. He's a blender. Yeah, David has stopped being important to them the mm. second their son came back. And that is super sad because the kid, David, the robot kid, he spends the movie just wanting to get his mom back. Yeah. The best the best sequence in the film is the, uh, the flesh fair. Oh, I was going to talk about something before the flesh fair, but okay. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, we'll get <laughs> no, back to it. Go ahead. The flesh fair is amazing, but they don't get David because their son's in a coma. In this new futuristic society, there's a huge ban on having kids. Most people can't have kids. So you get the robot kid as a supplement. In the case of the story it was based on, David is aware he's a robot. He's aware he's never going to grow up. He's aware he's only here temporarily. They bypass all of that in the movie. When it comes down to it, she doesn't return him to the factory because she knows he's going to have, you know, be dismantled. She instead takes him out into the middle of nowhere leaves him there and then even tells him it's not a game we can never see each other again yeah she abandons him in the woods the look on his face and when he's like begging her please don't leave me please don't leave me you're sitting there going i shouldn't be crying because this is again like like you said it's a blender but he he doesn't understand he thinks he's a child and he believes he's you know her son and she literally gets in the car and drives away while he's screaming and begging her to stay yeah that's depressing the flesh fair is the only time where the movie seems to have any teeth True. I was going to say grime. Everything before that and and after in this world looks like stainless steel, clean, shiny. And the flesh fair is the first time where it looks lived in. That's one of the great things about the original Star Wars movie is that it looks like a lived in world. Mm-hmm. AI has that terrible sheen everywhere. And then the flesh fair, it finally, to me, pun intended, comes alive. Because it seems like these are human beings. Like this is actual humanity in this future. This is what most people would be doing. And if you watch it... I wouldn't mind an entire, like, I don't know if a movie would work, but a series on the flesh fair, how it started. Because at one point, the dude who's running it even says, hey, we did have that one instance, you know, back in, you know, New Jersey or something where we thought it was a mecca and it turns out it actually was a person we kind of melted. Okay, so so there's a sequence (laughs) at the flesh fair where uh, in like an arena, they kill robots because people hate meccas. And they have this like little scanner, so they know David's a robot, but he starts screaming and begging the crowd, and the crowd turns because they think it's a real child, because because meccas don't sound like that. Meccas never beg for their lives, and that's the only reason that Joe survives, is because the kid grabs onto him, and the ringleader's like, okay, we'll just take them both out. Take them both out, strap them down, and when the liquid starts dripping on the kid, he starts screaming, like, I'm David, I'm David, don't hurt me. Mm -hmm. And everyone in the crowd freaks out like that you know mechas don't plead for their lives that's a real kid get him out of there this is actually really interesting and then it goes back to i gotta find the blue fairy no the the flesh fair is fascinating go back to that especially when it has all the robots that are in various states of disrepair and they're trying to fix themselves before the flesh fair finds them yeah i wish the movie had been about that i didn't need the rest of the movie at all where Mm -hmm. he just sits under a glacier for two thousand years or whatever Eh. it was interesting when he met the other david when he found out that, you know, he is David is not an original. There's literally like a production line mm-hmm. of David's and I think Darla's the girl version. So pretty much 
no one's learned any lesson from having David being able to care for someone. It's such a fun idea, but I don't think Spielberg was the right guy for this. I think Kubrick would have had a steadier hand. I think the movie needs some grit and not the Spielberg Peter Pan sheen that he was accused of for so long. Which I did not really see in Hook, but in AI, it's everywhere. Hook, it's there. Always, it's there. And it's funny, too. To me, at least, those are his three worst movies. AI, Hook, and Always. I don't really care too much about Always. I'll fight to the death on Hook. Yeah. But Well, and AI <laughs> on IMDb has like a 7.2. It has a really high rating. So maybe I'm in the wrong on this. But And just to clarify, I like high-concept sci-fi. 2001 is amazing. Mm-hmm. And AI just does not work for me. But also, too... That era of Spielberg, I didn't like War of the Worlds or Minority Report either. So yeah. I'm imagining if someone with more of that grit and darkness had done this movie, where it was more like the flesh fair throughout it. Yay, we see the people live in these really nice, spacey, futuristic, shiny houses, but they're miserable. And they love this boy, and then they treat him like garbage. Mm-hmm. And it is about an unwanted child who isn't aware that he's not even valued because he's not their real child anymore. I think AI fits on the list for unwanted kids because David does start out as a replacement goldfish. That's all he is. No, it does, but there's... He is a robot, but the part of the movie where he's trying to become a real boy, it would be kind of nice if they'd actually shown some time passing while he's out and around with Joe, who is, by the way, the most interesting character in the movie. I'm just going to say that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jude Law as as Gigolo Joe. I would have loved (laughs) to have seen a movie just on him or on Jane, who has like... 30 seconds of screen time. I'm much more interested in that world because it's more of a dark, gritty world. What's the only time anything is actually happening? Because up until then, it's just a boo-hoo mom with some kid that doesn't understand anything. Mm -hmm. And and that's it. Like, that's not interesting to me. It could be. You know, I'm I'm not making a broad statement that you can't make family movies or whatever. But the plight of this family needing a son and then getting a robot, I'm not that interested in that. When they show us the world... Yeah, I'm interested in that. That's way more interesting. Now, maybe if the family actually lived in there or they went out, you know, grocery shopping or did something where they were trying to prevent him from interacting with other mecha, we could actually see them interacting with the world. But wherever the parents live, it seems to be totally away from that. They're they're loaded. It's kind of like the uh, Home Alone family where you see that house and you just think to yourself, what do they do for a living? Because growing up... Yeah, that was a massive house. Yeah, like Tara, you and I grew up in opposing neighborhoods. We were, we lived right by each other. We didn't live in Home Alone type houses. And so when I would see movies like Home Alone or even Christmas Vacation and you see these houses and these giant yeah. yards, who are these people and what do they do? Yeah, my thought when I saw Home Alone, the mansion, I was like, is that guy the president or something? Because that is a huge house. He's got to do something where he gets a ton of money. He's probably an accountant. Probably. Or he's a... You know what? If Home Alone was remade today, if they did an actual remake of Home Alone now, I feel like the dad would be the bad guy because he's clearly <laughs> some sort of businessman, he's right? Good. He he's one of those loan officers that's constantly, you know, buying up apartment complexes and jacking right. up the rent in like three thousand dollars a month. Uh, back to AI though, I am crossing it off. I wish I liked it. I don't. I'm gonna have to cross it off. I mean I do like the movie. I like parts of it, but I think with a different director it would have been a lot better. But that flesh fair man, if you watch nothing else on this movie, just watch like ten minutes of it, you can probably find it on YouTube. Just know that's the best part of the movie. It's interesting. It is. When you watch these, you know, the robots, they're not going to beg for their lives. But you can see they're, they're scared as much as they can be scared. Next, we'll talk about Shazam, which was in our DCEU episode. So you've heard mine and uh, John's opinion on it. Tara, Shazam. I thought it was a pretty good movie. I don't want to say it's cute and it's fine because, again, that just sounds dismissive. <laughs> it's, a very, it's, it's very dismissive. Cute, fine, 
I mean, it's about a kid in foster care who is trying to find his mom. He does find his mom, and she wants nothing to do with him. Mm-hmm. Which it's it's kind of weird because in most of these movies where the kid wants to find their their birth parent, I don't want to say the real parent, the, the biological parent. Most of the time, the parents like, oh, okay. Let's go ahead and and break this down because there's really there's there's two things to talk about here. There's the theme of the episode, the unwanted kid, but then also yeah. it's a superhero movie, so we'll get to yeah. that. Let's talk about the unwanted kid part. So, like you said, Billy. Bathson, I think is his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is a troubled foster kid who keeps getting in trouble. The reason he keeps getting in trouble is because he's trying to break into cop cars and and find all of the like public listings of people with his mom's name. He's trying mm-hmm. to track down his mom because he was lost at a fair or something when he was about three, it looks like. Yeah, so it wasn't that he was taken from his mom. It was that he was literally yeah. just found. And he goes through the public foster care system and he is always looking for his mom. And he does eventually find her and she says that he was abandoned, that she left him on purpose, that she saw him with the police and thought that he would be better off with them. I don't think she said that he would have a better life. I don't think it was that hopeful. I think yeah. it was just... Don't you she, love that line, though? I, I gave you up to have a better life, and I don't know anything that happened, but I'm trusting it was better than what I yeah. could give you. Well, they show his memory of it, and then they show her memory of it. So you see the same scene twice. And in one, she's the pretty happy mom. And in the other one, you see her frustration at this child's behavior. Yeah. And it's kind of neat. That is kind of cool. And like you said, this is one of the only movies I've ever seen where he finds her and she just sort of pushes him back and says, no, no, thank you. It's like, no, I, if I wanted you, I would have found you. That's kind of a hard lesson for anyone. I don't care how old you are. If you're looking for someone, biological parents or anyone to be told, yeah, I don't care. I yeah. don't want you. You know, go back to wherever you came from. That is just one of those gut punches where you're like, uh, there's no coming back from this. Yeah, that that's, is that's sad. It's interesting, though. And, and actually, you know what? That's the thing about Shazam. I don't love it. I liked it. I did like it. Mm-hmm. I like Shazam. But my enjoyment of it is more out of surprise. It doesn't follow the usual trope of the kid finds his birth mother or his real mother and, you know, whatever. And she loves him and everything. It's roses and happy. It's a lovely, happy ending. No, it doesn't have that. It also has, with the superhero stuff, some darker elements. The villains who are hidden from the trailers are the seven deadly sins. The superhero stuff is pretty fun. My only real issue with that is that it never feels like Billy and Shazam are the same person. When he turns into Shazam, it feels like a completely different character. Yeah. It could be anyone as Shazam. It could be. Yeah, anyone could have been Shazam. The overall enjoyment of the movie is just the surprise that, oh, this isn't as dark and depressing as Batman v Superman. It actually has like a wicked sense of humor and and almost like an early Tim Burton-y sort of feel with the monsters Mm -hmm. and the villains and the Christmassy setting. It was made by a horror director, so you can get that sense from it. Yeah. And my enjoyment, again, isn't so much that it's good. It is, but it's not so much that in that, oh, it's not awful. <laughs> yeah. It's not what I was expecting when you see a movie about, okay, here's an orphan, an unwanted kid who becomes a superhero. We kind of see where this is going. And some of it does follow that path. His real family is the family that adopted him. Yeah. But he does have the realization that, hey, my mom, my birth mother, my bio mom didn't want me. She abandoned me. There was mm-hmm. no, I wasn't taken. I didn't lose her. She didn't die. She literally just abandoned me there. Yeah. And he does come to terms with that, if I remember right. His foster siblings are his real family, is yeah. what he comes to realize. Which is nice. Like, you know what's coming. You know yeah. it's going to go that direction. But it's not as sugary as it could have been. Yeah. In the DCEU scale of things, Shazam <laughs> is lively. It's, it's a and fun. lively and creative movie. There are actually instances of creativity where you just don't necessarily expect it to do what it does, which mm-hmm. is nice. I appreciate it more than I like it. But I don't dislike it at all. Yeah. It's still a good movie, though. It's not one I will sit down and watch over and over again. But if it's on TV, I'll at least watch parts of it going, okay, I do remember this. This was kind of funny. 
The Shazam stuff is fun. The superhero stuff is fun. I'm bulletproof. Even as an adult, if I got superpowers all of a sudden, I'm like, dude, anyone who cuts me off in traffic, they are going to be feeling it in a minute. I am crossing it off, though, not because it isn't thematically close enough to what we're talking about. It's just, it's good, and that's it, and I see what else is on here, so I am going to cross off Shazam. It's a good movie. I enjoy it, but I see the other movies on this list, so I will cross off Shazam now and save myself the debate later. Let's talk about Vera Drake, which is one of the movies that you probably never heard of. But you know the Vera Drake because she's been in a lot of movies. You know, the lady that plays her. Oh, that's what you meant. Yeah, Melda Staunton. She was, once again, bringing up Harry Potter. She was uh, the woman in pink. Oh, my God. What was her name? In Harry Potter 5. Dolores Umbridge. Dolores Umbridge. Okay. Yeah. So, Melda Staunton is the actress. You've probably never heard of the movie, though. So, the movie Vera Drake is by Mike Lee. It's about an abortionist in 1950s England. England. Yeah, I believe so. I think it's the 50s. Abortion is totally illegal. In the early 2000s, it felt kind of like a Miramax-y sort of Oscar bait attempt. It probably was. A lot of these types of films were coming out in that era. It wasn't a big hit, but also, too, it was directed by Mike Lee. And Mike Lee is not really famous. He's known to movie nerds, obviously, but yeah. he's not Spielberg. a marquee name. Yeah, he's not like Spielberg or Kubrick. If someone says Mike Lee, uh, unless, unless you uh, regularly shop the Criterion Collection... You may not know who he is. But now I'm thinking of Vera Drake if it was done by Spielberg, and that's just a horrible image. (laughs) So Mike Lee, he is known for, if this is the right term, improvisational movies. And so even though he has received Oscar nominations for screenplay, he doesn't write the scripts out. He writes characters and emotions, and the actors improvise their lines. That was the big thing in Vera Drake, because if I remember right from behind-the-scenes stuff, You had the character Vera Drake, who's the abortion doctor, a midwife as well, I believe. She has her certain stuff that she does, but the rest of the movie, her family has no idea what she's doing. And the actors and actresses had no idea until the end of the movie comes and she's arrested that that's what the movie was really about. The idea is that the character is keeping it from her family, and so they kept it from the actress playing her family. It's very interesting, and you might think that it's boring and... Some people probably do, but he did a movie called Secrets and Lies, which received some Oscar nominations, and it's great. And that one is about a woman who was given up for adoption Mm -hmm. who finds her birth mother. And it's about how that disturbs this woman's family so much. And it's hilarious. That sounds bad to say. No, no, no. It's It's so funny and so depressing and dark. It mixes those tones very well because it's presented like a normal drama there's no scripted melodrama, so the the dialogue feels very natural. So when the family screams and argues at each other, it feels like you're watching a real family fight, which makes your stomach drop a little bit more, right? Because yeah. it seems so real. But it's so funny, too. Like, it's, it's, it's hard to describe, but Secrets and Lies is great. If you need to try a Mike Lee movie to kind of see if that's your thing, I highly recommend Secrets and Lies. He also did Naked with David Thewlis. He also did Topsy Turvy, which was about uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, I think, the the two songwriters from way, way long ago. Vera Drake, they use that same style. For me, the movie is just... It's kind of slow and boring, but it also has the... You don't actually see the procedure being done, but you do see how Vera Drake herself is very nice to the girls that come to her, tells them what they have to take care of, and is very nice and professional. And she does it all for free. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Vera ends up getting arrested, of course. Yeah, she gets arrested and I believe ends up going to prison. I don't know how long she's in there for, but you have to remember that back in the 50s, birth control for women was pretty much limited to 
you may be able to get birth control if you have a pharmacist who's willing to fill it for you. Um, you, you definitely were at the mercy of whatever the man deemed necessary. And I feel bad criticizing Vera Drake because it's a good movie. It's just... Not when you want to sit through well, again? Actually, you know what? It's kind of like how the way I would warn anyone else about, about a Mike Lee movie like Secrets and Lies, I would say it's great, but it's slow. It's just about people talking. It's just about relationships. Not a lot happens, happens in it. Well, even Marriage Story, more stuff, you know, happens, air quotes, in Marriage Story. But Secrets and Lies is more like a fly on the wall. And same thing with Vera Drake. It's not documentary style per se, but it has a dry, naturalistic approach that does sort of translate, I hate to say it's boring. I wouldn't call it like boring. What you see on the street normally does not excite you. It doesn't make you go, ooh, I want to see that. But you see someone on the street yelling and screaming at their significant other. You're kind of interested because, hey, what's going on over there? Yeah, it's just a normal drama, which sounds really dismissive. <laughs> it's cute in normal drama way. That sounds oh my God, even worse. Cute. No, I mean, it's not cute. It isn't, Vera Drake is not a cute movie. It is it's, not cute yeah, at, at all. Vera Drake is one of those movies where I feel bad cutting it because it's good. I just, uh, there's nothing in particular that I can recommend necessarily. Even the improvisational nature of it. Like, I can only recommend that so much because if you don't know that going in, you're never going to assume that people are ad-libbing. It's it's fly on the wall, and that doesn't always work for me. Not saying yeah. bad at all. It is a good take as to what some women have had and will continue to go through when they need a service like this. Well, wait a and minute. So what would anyone go through today when everything is so perfect and you have complete autonomy? You're totally not watching his face right now because you can't see the sarcasm. Yeah, I, I'm trying to sell the sarcasm. I'm, I'm hoping it's coming through. Because <laughs> if not, you're going to get a like, lot of angry... Why would that happen today? What do you mean women are going to go through that? Yeah, it's... The sarcasm aside, it is a very dark movie when you look at this, not from the perspective of this could happen, but this is happening and will continue to happen pretty much. There are darker, bloody movies about this. This is kind of cut and dry with, hey, there's a little tiny bit of hope, but... Sometimes that's not enough. Talking through this, though, I do kind of wish I'd put Secrets and Lies on here because that would have been one of my final three. And that is about an unwanted child. She's an adult in the film. Yeah, well, yeah. But it is about an unwanted child. I definitely recommend Secrets and Lies. It would have survived if it was on here, but I'm crossing off Vera Drake. I'm kind of curious about Secrets and Lies myself because I haven't seen it, but you said there's some kind of humor in the fact, like the, the family turns on the mom or what happens? The mom is a little daffy. The mom cries a lot, which mm. we normally shouldn't laugh at, but it's so funny. Let's talk about one that I'm definitely keeping, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Just the name alone, I remember this movie because I think of like, you know, the 80s and high school. And I think I saw this, was it late 80s? Uh, 83, actually. Okay, so or I saw- 82 even. So I was, didn't watch this until like the 90s, but thinking, man, high school's going to be kind of cool and kind of weird, but- the main message with the, the storyline with the abortion kind of flew over my head because I watched this as a kid not realizing that was ever a thing. Yeah. Well, Amy Heckerling, who also did Clueless, directed it. There's an abortion subplot in the movie where Jennifer Jason Lee gets pregnant and she goes and gets an abortion. And the movie was sort of criticized for how okay she is afterwards. Mm -hmm. She's not sick or depressed, depressed and crying. It was sort of criticized for how normal she is afterwards. But the film was also praised for how normal her decision is treated. She knows what she wants to do or needs to do. And there's no big speech. There's no big screaming fit with anybody. It's treated as such a normal thing. And also, too, even the sex scene, the scene where she 
gets pregnant is not romanticized in any way. She's just staring at the roof of a dugout. Yeah. (laughs) And Fast Times actually shows it as sort of like weird. She's having sex in a dugout and she's just sort of laying there and staring (laughs) at the ceiling. That's not what you're taught about usually. I'm assuming you ever get sex ed that's even remotely honest sex ed. It's usually... It's between, at least for the girls, I got this version. It's you and your <laughs> husband. There's different versions, don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, you and your husband, maybe boyfriend, fiance, but usually your husband, and marriage, it's more that stuff. Never once was there mention of, unless you're one of those girls, that, you know, you would be doing this in a dugout. You'd be right. doing this, like, in the back of a car. You'd be doing this like the dirty girls do. Yeah. And it wasn't portrayed as amazing and it wasn't portrayed as like a horrible mistake it was just sort of normal and disappointing for her and that was it and which is kind of normal actually which is why i think a lot of people were like well my kids would never do that but yeah yeah, they probably will and they probably are like fast times was actually written by cameron crowe who wrote a book about his experience where he very much like drew barrymore and never been kissed Mm -hmm. he went undercover in high school for a year (laughs) to write a book about being in high school and, and that's why the characters sound like, you know, they're actual teenagers yeah. and not 20-year-olds talking about, you know, teenage stuff. Well, I don't want to say true to life because there is some exaggerated 80s humor. And it has the Spicoli character, which is on the poster. You see Sean Penn, the yeah. surfer dude. But then you have all these different little, like, vignettes of related characters. And the most famous scene, of course, is Judge Reinhold imagining Phoebe Cates coming out of a swimming pool mm-hmm. saying, hi, Brad. And she takes off her top in slow motion to moving in stereo by the cars. <laughs> and and that scene ruined so many VHS tapes because people would <laughs> rent it, pause it and rewind, pause it and rewind. So the film in the or the tape in the VHS would stretch. And, <sighs> and so when you rented Fast Times, there would always be like tracking lines on that scene because of the amount of times people would rewatch it. It's one of the most famous nude scenes in Hollywood history. So another reason why a lot of people probably, I say a lot, but people did not like this movie because it showed high schoolers as high schoolers. They're teenagers. They're going to make dumb mistakes. They're horny teenagers, which makes the mistakes even more problematic. Yeah, the reviews are really poor. Because it wasn't a romanticized version like maybe 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, Grease even. And it wasn't a slapstick version like Joysticks or Police Academy or whatever. This was more of this is actually kind of what happens. It's still the Hollywood version of it, but... I do like Fast Times. I watched it again recently. But again, as a kid watching it, I kind of missed all of the the nods and the indications of the abortion because I didn't understand it. I right. was like, huh, okay, so she's in trouble. So she went to the doctor and she can't tell her parents because, I don't know, she doesn't want them to know she's sick. I don't know, for better or worse, depending on your point of view, it handled it in a way that movies hadn't really shown it, at least not in an American teenage comedy, yeah. that this is something that can happen, pregnancy can happen in a way that's not necessarily romantic or pleasant. And she just handles the situation that in the way that she sees fit because 30 years ago, you know, you can make this choice. <laughs> yeah. But even in Greece, like the, the topic vaguely came up and it was just kind of hand brushed away. And then at the end of the movie, oh, I'm not pregnant. It's okay. But I thought you meant the country Greece. I was very confused yeah. for a second oh, there. No, because Greece was the first movie I saw as a kid watching the high school stuff. So I was like, okay, so this is high school, even if it's the 50s. You're going to have this stuff, but you don't got to worry in the end because everything's going to be fine. I love the idea that Danny and Sandy are dead. So at the end, the car at the fair flies away in in the movie Grease, not the country Grease. In the movie Grease, Mm. the car flies away with John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, and they're all singing that song, waving to their friends. The camera goes in the air, and their car basically flies off, which is a very strange ending. And the idea is that in the very beginning... They're describing in their song how they met, where Danny saves her from drowning. 
So the idea is that he actually died saving her, well, trying to save her, so they both drowned. And the whole movie is a fantasy in their heads in the afterlife or purgatory or whatever. And so when they fly away in the car at the end, that's them going to heaven because they're actually dead. Anyways, back to topic. <laughs> okay. I'm going to keep Fast Times at Ridgemont High, at least for now. It, I don't know if it's one of my three, but it is a very good movie. It's not a silly comedy. It's not a dumb comedy. It does have comedic moments, but... There is some over-the-top stuff. There is some silliness. There's a great moment with Forrest Whitaker in his car. Because <laughs> Forrest Whitaker... <laughs> dude, Nicolas Cage, Anthony Edwards, there's so many people in this movie. There is some silliness, but it's a little more grounded than we're used to for this era of comedy. I think some people might be sort of turned off by there not being a through line. Like, there's not a plot per se where the movie is about, oh, I'm going to turn this person into the prom queen. And then at yeah. the end, she finds out it's a bet. Storyline. Story. It's just the course of a year and these little vignettes of characters getting jobs, working at the mall, where working at the mall was the coolest thing ever. Mm -hmm. And it's more of a collection of scenes. And there is some growth. And I really do like actually where the jerk teacher isn't really a jerk. Like, he's kind yeah. of justified. And so there's a character named Mr. Hand who is just the bane of Spicoli's existence. But like, there's a sort of mutual respect between them. Yeah. He's not the, what do you want to do with your life? Like screaming. He's appropriate in his justification of mm -hmm. reprimanding Spicoli. Like he's not just a jerk. He's you not know? over the top. He's doing his job. And they do have a mutual respect, especially at the end of the movie where yeah. I don't think they shake hands or anything, but they at least have that kind of like, hey. I get you, I understand, and even if we were kind of, you know, frenemies for a while, we're cool. Yeah, like Mr. Hand can be a figure of authority and not be a jerk. That Precisely. is possible, but we never saw that in those movies back then. It was always the comically over-the-top, like, uh, what's Ferris the guy? Ferris Bueller? I was, well, was going to say, who's the guy in Police Academy who always screams, Proctor? People in authority were over, always over-the-top and yelling and screaming, so you were clearly on the side of the teenager. They were, they were bad guys. Yes, but... I remember some teachers I didn't get along with in high school. And even at you know the end of the school year, I could say, hey, the bad teachers were bad, not because they gave me bad grades or I thought the class was boring, but because they, they had to deal with me. <laughs> Maybe that or because they didn't like the subject because they were burned out because they had other stuff going on. I'm keeping fast times for now. I'm keeping fast times as well. I was going to say, let's do Dirty Dancing because that kind of like Fast Times has abortion as part of the movie, but people tend to forget about it. Well, yeah, that. it's not about that. That's just yeah. a part of the movie. And kind of like Fast Times, though, the way it's handled mm -hmm. is what's kind of interesting and appreciated, at least for me. This might surprise you, Tara, but Dirty Dancing is one of my favorite movies of all time. That does not surprise <laughs> me. I was surprised more that you cut Sin City without like hesitating oh, okay. than saying Dirty Dancing is one of my favorite. I'm like, okay, that's acceptable. I could see that. I love Dirty Dancing so much. The soundtrack, the soundtrack is great. I still have the soundtrack. Oh, the I have soundtrack the, is so good. The, the She's like the wind. Tape. You know? I have the freaking audio tape of it somewhere. When when they re-released this in theaters, I went and saw it two days in a row. I just kept going back. I love Dirty Dancing so much. And Did you go there like in costume, like you're the first person in line no, with the Star funny. Wars guys? <laughs> like, a, like a Star Wars cosplay <laughs> for Dirty Dancing. Um, But no, oh man, I miss Patrick Swayze. Ugh, yeah. that, that one was that one hurt. That was sad. And the worst part about losing Patrick Swayze was that we lost him in between like two other big stars. So he was just kind of like pushed aside. I mean, when it came out, it kind of blew people away, didn't yeah. it? Yeah, well, when it came out, it was actually a slow rollout. They didn't think it was going to do well. It didn't open big. Hmm. And it's one of those movies where it just hung on for so long. And it just kept playing. It was originally considered almost a failure. And it just caught on at the right moment. And then you have, of course, all these copycat dancing movies like Lombada and The Forbidden Dance, <laughs> which came out on the same day. And that's a whole other story. Two competing yeah. dancing movies, kind of like Deep Impact and Armageddon, came out on the same day. 
Dirty Dancing, for me at least, I don't know how to describe it. It's not particularly romantic. It's not particularly dramatic. But for some reason, it's one of those movies that is completely the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. I can't really pinpoint exactly why I love it. But man, it just gives me the feels. I mean, also, it doesn't doesn't make the 50s look like this amazing, wonderful time. Like, Yeah, there's some sadness, but it's not a depressing movie. I mean, the whole reason that Baby gets together with Patrick Swayze's character, and the name escapes me right now, is because... She's horny. Besides that. Because one of the girls in the, the group, she has to get an abortion. And because of that, she's out of the, the dance competition because of the complications. Yeah, and so Baby dances with Patrick Swayze. If you know the behind the scenes... In real life, while they were filming, they did not get along. Like, there are parts in the movie where you can see frustration on Patrick Swayze's face, and he is not acting. <laughs> and, that's not, and, and that's not a joke, though. They included some what would otherwise be outtakes mm-hmm. in the edit of, like, when Baby is training and not doing well, yeah. and you see the frustration on his face. That's not fake. Uh, Dirty Dancing was choreographed by Kenny Ortega, who did High School Musical. <laughs> yes. All yes. right, then. Hey, you know, a small world. Uh, he also directed Hocus Pocus. Okay, that one I'm behind. But no, but Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze didn't get along, and I think that helps the movie so much. because they have that tension. That sparks, you know? And it kind of helps because in a lot of these, the two people, there's no chemistry there. There's absolutely nothing. But in this case, you can see... That tension between them makes the romance that much more interesting. Like, you can see it. If you don't know the behind the scenes, then you won't even think about that. But if you do know it, Mm -hmm. watching them fall in love... Even though the real life emotion isn't that, just that there is a real life emotion, I think helps so much. It's a good movie. I mean, the soundtrack, I still remember listening to that all the time. Oh, (laughs) I still have it. I still listen to it. We should touch though, given the topic, we should touch on the abortion part. I briefly mentioned it was similar to Fast Times in that, so the backstory in the film is that Patrick Swayze's dance partner, she gets pregnant and wants an abortion. Baby goes to her dad, dad who's a doctor, for the money. Mm Mm-hmm. And all he asks her is if, are right. you sure? And can I help you? And that's it. And she just says, you need to trust me, dad. Mm-hmm. And he does. But again, to use that word normal, it's treated with such normalcy. And then when the abortion goes poorly because the guy used dirty tools or whatever, yeah, uh, she has to go to her dad, who is a doctor, to actually come and help. And it's never a screaming match. If this was made today, oh, somebody, probably her dad, would be made to be the bad guy. You have to have a bad guy in this. You can't yeah, just have... Yeah, would be made to freak out or something. He's not pleased with his daughter. Like, he still puts baby in a corner, like he, the famous line says. He's you know? not happy with her, but he understands that this is kind of beyond father-daughter relationships right now. Her friend needs help. Her friend is going to die if I, as a doctor, don't do something. I can disapprove of what's happening, but still help this girl, which is something you don't really see too much nowadays. Yeah. It's not screaming. It's not moralizing. It's not angry. He doesn't do the movie thing. Yeah, he doesn't start blaming her. You know, this is what I get for letting you go join this dance competition. If you dance with them one more time, I swear. Like, none of that stuff. Yeah, the the point is that the dad reacts not as a movie dad does, but as hopefully a real dad or a more natural dad would that, hey. Would possibly do it. Yeah, my daughter messed up. She's come to me for help. I can be angry and disappointed once the problem is dealt with. They don't say it directly in the movie. And so this might be me just imagining things. But when she goes to him for the money, he probably thinks it's for her. He just trusts her. But then I imagine when he finds out that it's this other woman. He was relieved. He's probably relieved. But they never express that. He never says, Oh, thank God it's not you. Thank God it wasn't you. They never give you anything in the movie to make you think that. But I do kind of wonder if this is meant to be like a real life character. 
maybe he wasn't angry because he was just glad that it wasn't her. Everyone's happy to help until they realize maybe it actually affects me directly. But in this case, he probably was relieved it wasn't his daughter, especially when he finds out the complications and that this poor girl's almost dead. The dad isn't pleased about what she's asking for, and then he isn't pleased that this woman got an abortion. He still helps. It's just the right thing to do. He's not sitting back and judging the girl for this happening or saying, if you just kept your legs closed, you wouldn't be in this. Yeah. He's going to help. I bet if this was made today, the dad would go into that room with her and maybe like grab Patrick Swayze by the collar and push him against the wall and say, what did you do to her or something Precise, like that? Precisely. Like, what did you do to my daughter, you piece of crap? If you did that movie today, it'd be a lot more over the top with, you know, some kind of mm -hmm. grand gesture and, you know, screaming matches probably. I'm going to keep Dirty Dancing for now. Yeah. I, I'd say it's one of my three, but I'm going to hold it just because we've got oh, a few more no, movies. Oh, there's no, there's no for now for me. It's absolutely surviving. Real quick, just want to point out too, the montages and the dancing. They're awesome. It's I, so much fun. I don't really care about dancing movies, but Dirty Dancing just has such a great story, great characters, great soundtrack that I could sit there and watch it, even the dancing moments, and I'm like, okay, this would bore me in any other movie. But this movie's just done so well, it's great. A little bit of real life trivia. So Jennifer Grey, the actress, obviously playing mm -hmm. baby, in Dirty Dancing, she has, we'll just say it, she has a big nose. In real life, after Dirty Dancing, she got a nose job and her career tanked. Mm -hmm. And then she did a sitcom, a classic three-camera sitcom with a live studio audience where she played herself. She plays Jennifer Grey. And they kept doing the joke where people don't recognize her because her nose is different. <laughs> they don't recognize it's her because of her nose. And and that's a gag, a recurring gag in the sitcom that I, I don't believe lasted very long at all. Actors and actresses, when they get plastic surgery, a lot of the times we say, did they? You look and you're yeah. like, did they get a, a facelift? You know, other than Nicole Kibben, whose forehead hasn't moved in like 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the time, you kind of wonder, like you assume maybe, you kind of wonder. But with Jennifer Grey... The plastic surgery was never in doubt. It made everyone kind of go, wait, is that? No, that can't be her because she looks nothing like her. So with me keeping Dirty Dancing, and I've already said I'm keeping Fast Times, that means I can only keep one of what remains, which are Juno, Gosnell, and people under the stairs. Tara, give me one that you would cut. Oh, that's easy. I'm going to go with Gosnell. <laughs> okay. Well, now, <laughs> That okay. was just the court case on this. I remember when it broke years ago. Kermit Gosnell. His name has kind of faded in time, and I'm not sure it's because other horrible things have happened. Because every day something happens. That's true. Every day something terrible happens. We hear a story today about a doctor inducing labor, giving birth to a child, and then snipping its neck with scissors. That's terrible, but tomorrow there's going to be a shooting. The Gosnell thing, it kind of fits on this list, I guess, almost in the way that AI fits on the list, that it is about oh, unwanted kids. this is absolutely kids. directly on. related to abortion, but, though, like 100%. But, if I can finish, there's a difference between abortion and what Gosnell was doing for so long. So the movie, to be clear, is about the investigation into Kermit Gosnell, who was a doctor who was, uh, oh, we don't have to say allegedly, right, because he was convicted. He would actually induce labor. And so these women would essentially, not even essentially, they'd be giving birth. And so the baby's head would come out. And while the baby was like half in and out, would take scissors and snip the spinal cord on their necks. These were babies that were out Four. of the body, moving and crying. And yes, I know the argument is always going to go back to, they're always living children. He was inducing birth and then killing the babies. Okay. Yeah. And the only reason he was caught is because uh, a woman died after a procedure. So this movie is about the investigation and the trial and how this doctor is just sort of oblivious to what how wrong done. it is. Because he still felt justified in what he was doing. He thought he was helping. The movie is 
kind of cheap. Like, so here's the thing. Full disclosure, I like this movie a lot. I mm -hmm. really do. I'm not keeping it. I am crossing off the movie. It was made to be a TV movie. So watching it on home video, sure, you may not care. But I saw this in theaters. The movie only had a two and a half million dollar budget. It was crowdsourced. It was crowdfunded wow. on like Indiegogo and Kickstarter. The movie is made from a conservative slant. It was made mm -hmm. by people who were pro-birth. I'm not going to say pro-life because once you're born, they don't care about you. Just like George Carlin said, like once you're born, they don't care about you because if they did, we would have healthcare. Healthcare. We would have Pre school lunches, yeah. better education. We wouldn't want a wall on our Mexico border because if you are pro-life, then let people live their lives, right? And when you think about it, the pre-born, I think is what they, they term, they're the most undemanding people you could ever oh, yeah. have because they don't need anything. They don't demand anything. They exist in potentia. They can be whatever mouthpiece yeah, you I want. Yeah, I don't know who said that. I saw, I saw a tweet with that quote where it said that the unborn are the easiest people to rally for because they don't ask for anything. Yeah, they literally... Someone much smarter yeah. than us said that. Yeah, but um, it's kind of weird because in Gosnell's case, if this is the only alternative that you can get, you will go to someone like Gosnell. I mean, I know it's really hard to argue or justify one way or the other when you put what could be considered an arbitrary time frame. At what point in time is it no longer okay to get an abortion, right? Assuming you're okay with abortions, where's the line drawn? Is it 10 weeks, 15 weeks? Like, where does it stop being okay? And... I would definitely say that when the baby is out of the mom and crying, that's when it stops being okay, for yeah. sure. Well, at that point, Probably before born. that, too, yeah. but definitely at that point. People like to use the term partial birth abortion, which means absolutely nothing. That is a political term. But statistically, most women who are in their third trimester mean to have the pregnancy continue. They mean to have their kid. But back to the topic of the film itself, it was made by conservatives with that intent but weirdly, the movie doesn't come off as having an abortion is bad message. It has the message that what he was doing is bad, which I agree with. Yeah. So and so it's sort of weird that you didn't need they that fully slant. intended, they marketed it to the conservative market. The movie actually was made in 2015, and they spent another three years just trying to get somebody to put it out. <laughs> um, it's the first, essentially what's meant to be a propaganda film that I've seen to where they don't sell the message that they intended. I don't get this movie as an anti-abortion movie. I, to me, this movie is just a movie about a guy that killed a bunch of kids. Um, but either way, though, I do like the movie. It is cheap. So if you do watch Gosnell, just keep in mind that it has sort of a lifetime movie kind of look and budget. <laughs> but I did enjoy it. If you want to watch a movie about cops investigating a clinic and a guy going to trial, I mean, yeah, it's kind of interesting. You know, and politically, I don't know where you fall, but to me... I don't know the anyone is, uh, who, who looks at Gosling and says that he was doing yeah, good things. Right. The movie, to me, is way more fair-minded than I ever expected. Which but, is kind of weird, given who funded it. From the, the, the people who were paying for the movie, you think they'd want to make these women like part of the problem. They're the bad guys. They're part no, of the problem. No, it's not about that at all. It's, Which it's, is so it's weird. very focused just on Gosnell and how his clinic was full of cats and how he kept baby parts in jars. Like, he had jars of baby feet. In the movie, at least. I don't know if this is in real life, but in the movie, he has jars of baby feet that he kept. That is awesome. I'm not keeping it. Yeah, no, no. I'm crossing off the movie. Again, it's super cheap, but for me, at least, I, it was an easy watch, you know? I mean, well, okay, easy watch is the wrong way to okay, phrase that. You, no, you no, 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 no. You did not like... see my head just whiplash around. Like, <laughs> That's not what, what I mean. I mean, the hell, man. For what they intended to make, and given the topic, surprisingly, it's pretty good, but also, like, cheap and relatively poorly made. Imagine a dark, depressing Lifetime movie uh, made with a political slant that fails. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's watchable. It has Dean Cain in it, you know, and there's another that's Lois not, and Clark reference. That's not saying much about Dean Cain, though. Yeah, I know. Okay, I'm crossing off Juno. 
which actually kind of spoils the movie that I'm keeping. Juno, my problem with Juno is not really the fault of the film, I don't think. No? When Juno came out, I thought it was great. I loved it. I laughed. It's still funny. It's mm-hmm. still funny now. And, and I would be tempted to keep it. The problem is Juno is a victim of time. Kind of like other movies that are successful and have a whole bunch of copycats. And even the writer of Juno, uh, Diablo Cody, who won the Oscar for it, even she has not been able to replicate her own success because people expected her to write a certain way. And she's written a few other movies like Young Adult, I think, and uh, Jennifer's Body. But the reason that I don't want to keep Juno and why I say it's a victim of time is that watching it now, it's just kind of annoying. It's cringe. And well, It's the- so much of that, like, that kind of wacky humor, the not quite hot topic humor, but the, the little snarky comments. Hot topic humor. Well, and that's the thing. What you're describing is the way Diablo Cody writes. And back then, it was fresh. It was new. Mm-hmm. I like Michael Sarah, but he has a very specific type of character that he plays. And it was still new in Juno. And then he just did the same thing again oh, and like again Adam and again. Sandler, yeah. And and so you watch Juno now. And if you're already familiar with Michael Sarah, it's just more of the same. The Diablo Cody writing today, after having so many copycats, just comes off as kind of like trying too hard. Like, it's too obvious. It's one of those things where nobody really talks this way. Mm-hmm. It's way too witty for its own good. Witty, witty's the word I'm looking It's witty and snarky. But super funny, witty, and snarky are compliments. Like, those are nice things to say about a good movie. It's just, we have seen so many movies since then in the, what, the 15 years since Juno? Something like that. Where going back to it is the problem. So if I had only seen it back then, I would probably be keeping it. I'd probably be praising it more. But having rewatched it, ah, just the attitude and like you said, the snark and the wit, it feels forced. I'm not going to criticize wit because mm-hmm. that's not that's not something to be criticized for. Back then, it was a breath of fresh air. It was something cool, new, and exciting. Like, wow, these guys are so clever the way they talk. I will say I watched Juno when it came out and I did not like it. Okay. And the people that I watched with were like, oh, this is a great movie. Didn't like, you no. give me Juno on DVD? Didn't I get that I from don't you? Remember, but I, don't know. I hated the movie then. And you hated it? <laughs> I thought it was, well, looking at it for what it was, I'm like, okay, I get it's a teen pregnancy movie. I've seen these, but it is the biggest anti-abortion movie that you've ever seen without coming out saying it's anti-abortion. Hold on. I'll, okay. I will explain. She sees me trying to interrupt. Yeah. Well, you went on your big tangent that now it's my yeah, No, go ahead. It's fine. You have a teen girl who finds out she's pregnant. She tells her parents and they're kind of like a little disappointed, but they're mostly laughing. Hey, man, I didn't think that guy had it in and this is kind of funny. Well, J.K. Simmons, man. He's yeah. awesome. She does think about getting an abortion. She goes to a clinic. And at this clinic, they have one person that goes to her high school outside with the sign screaming, your baby has fingernails, don't murder your baby. Now, I understand it'd be a totally different tone if they actually had a, you know, legitimate crowd. Like, people are out there protesting. I've seen it when I drive around. But she goes to the clinic. And in the clinic are the only people in the movie that are horribly unprofessional. The ladies in there, the secretaries, like, filing their nails. They ignore her. The, there's an ashtray on the table that's full of dirty bandages. It's clear that the abortion clinic is not somewhere Juno needs to be. So Mm. she has a panic attack and she runs out. So she decides she's going to give the baby up for adoption. So she finds a nice married couple. She gets back together with the the dude who impregnated her. And everything kind of ends on this, yay, everything's good note. They're not going to show her having the emotional distress of signing away the adoption. Because guess what? Even though you have removed the baby and you've given it to someone else, your body's still producing all the milk. Your body's still going through the post-pregnancy symptoms. I mean, it's just, yeah, but they it's only, a comedy. They can only but, cover so much. Like they never show people stopping to take a dump in a movie either. But they do. 
The dump is always a punchline, though. They, yeah. they never just show, like, a random person having to stop to go poo. Movies can't cover every detail. And it's, and it's I know, a comedy. But, but here's the thing. It's a comedy, but it's a comedy where it's very clear that Juno's choice is not a choice at all. Her choice is to have the baby and raise it or have the baby and give it to this wonderful couple that really wants to adopt it and they're pretty well off and the baby's going to be great. Never once is the choice Juno could get an abortion because, okay, the movie would be over in 30 minutes, but it doesn't have to be. Juno is the biggest, best, well-made comedy that is anti-abortion, which is a sentence I never thought I would say. If you watch Juno at all with the realization of things that are happening nowadays or even in the past two or three years, this is a comedy, it's Hollywood, but it is played for much more laughy snarks than anything has a right to be. Yeah, the movie doesn't have to be just about her choice, but she doesn't have a choice. Well, I do agree about the way they portray the clinic. I never got an anti-abortion perspective because one thing I say in real life is, don't ask me a yes or no question if the answer can't be no. And so with Juno, her choices are abortion or or not, right? So why can't she choose not? That doesn't mean that it's an anti-abortion movie. If they had actually shown the clinic where the people weren't clearly rude, dismissive, didn't care about her, if they showed the clinic that they were the same nice people as everywhere else in the movie, her choice would have been valid as, hey, this is not for me. But because the abortion clinic is portrayed as this negative place where people don't care about you, they don't want you there. You're saying the writing is making the choice versus having a character make a choice. Precisely. I mean, to me, I just saw it as a character is making a choice and they wrote it to be this choice. And that's fine. But of course, obviously, there's meaning in everything. And bringing up Harry Potter, strangely, for like the fourth time in our abortion episode. (laughs) A sentence you never thought you'd say. Right, right. It's always been a little weird and uncomfortable for me that the bankers in the world of Harry Potter are goblins. Yeah, that's a kind of a... Like, I love love Warwick Davis, but like, even still, you can't help but think of some historical perspective there, right? That's really hard to watch. I mean, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I feel like associating goblins and money, like, I can't... Especially with the makeup they use, the prosthetics. Yeah, I I can't help but... There's some sort of historical memory. There might be some time in history where... Someone has compared these things in discouraging and disparaging ways. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I would have no problem with Juno at all if the people in the clinic had been written to be, you know, good. I would have maybe kept Juno at that point because then her choice would have been valid if I don't want an abortion. I thought I could, but I don't want it now. I will find a good family to adopt this baby to. Or I might keep the baby myself. But instead, her choice was limited to these people treated me bad and this clinic is bad and it's dirty. So... Mm. My choice is made. I can't go here. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. And For a comedy movie, it didn't need to have that. It was a cute movie, not to be dismissive. Again, clear that spot with the clinic. I would have probably kept Juno. I'm not cutting it for any reason as angry as you sound. For me, it's just so much time has passed. So many other things have come out that watching it now, the things that I've said that are complimentary don't benefit the film that much anymore. This is going to be a weird comparison, but kind of like early Eli Roth movies. So Cabin Fever and Hostel. If I watch Cabin Fever or Hostel now, they are (laughs) not good movies. And it's so weird to think that they were liked back then. But of course, you have to look at the, you know, extreme era of horror and early torture porn and stuff like that. But you watch Cabin Fever now and you just hate everybody. It's not as clever as you thought it was back then. Time is what is crossing off Juno for me. When we say movies are timeless like Wizard of Oz, that means that it doesn't matter how much society has changed, we still like it Mm -hmm. decades later. 
Juno was the first, I think, big one recently that addressed teen pregnancy in a pure comedy aspect. Well, it was hugely successful and got Oscar nominations. It won for screenplay. It is a well-written movie. It is funny. I just want to be extra clear, despite Tara's anger. Hmm. It's not a bad movie. It worked back then, but just not now. So I think we're down to the last one on our list. The last one is People Under the Stairs, which was a Wes Craven movie. came out in 92, I believe. And I think I saw it when I was about six years old. Has a very young Ving Rhames. People Under the Stairs is about a home in an inner city where I think they're the landlords, right? For for a couple blocks. Mm -hmm. And it's this white couple and it is uh, an urban area. And so there is the whole race perspective because that's a big part of the movie where it's a white couple controlling the rent of a black neighborhood and a man and a young boy decide to break in spoilers he dies and the young kid has to figure out how to escape this house from these twisted landlords like they're not just landlords they are evil like they're these, monsters yeah these people are monstrous and they're only credited as the man and the woman i think or mommy and daddy or, or mommy something and daddy like something yeah. like that and they're played by ed and nadine from twin peaks that casting Obviously, it had to be on purpose because Twin Peaks was two years earlier. So yeah, there had they be. knew that they were casting a married couple from a TV show as a married couple in this movie. Except for in the show, they're quirky and nice. And in this, they're just monsters. They keep children that they don't want under the stairs. And these are people that they've acquired because they want to... Uh, to be more clear, they kidnap these kids. They're, I, think, I think they're all boys. And when the boys act out or act as normal kids do, they banish them under the stairs. They cut out their tongues. Yeah, one boy has a tongue yanked out. There's one daughter in the house that hasn't ended up under the stairs yet. Mm -hmm. But the idea is yet. At some point, she's going to anger mommy or daddy, and she's going to end up down there with them too. Right. And the poster on this thing was... Oh, the poster's called The Skull Floating in the Sky? Yes. Uh, But the, the horror element at first is who are these creatures under the stairs living in the walls... And then you find out that they're not bad at all. They're just trapped down there and that the man and the woman are the evil ones. The kid in the movie is named Fool. He befriends their daughter and the two of them try to escape. The race metaphor is... Well, I don't even know if it's a metaphor in this film, to be honest. I don't think it is a Um, metaphor. It's pretty obvious. Yeah, it's not as subtle as like the George Romero movies. They don't dive into it too strongly. It's there because it's obvious. You Mm -hmm. You see the neighborhood. You see the characters. But there aren't huge discussions about it. The film doesn't point it out to you. My only real issue with the movie at all is there's a character named Roach, who's one of the people under the stairs. He's essentially the main person under the stairs, and he has his tongue cut out. But he's played by a comic actor. You'd recognize him if you saw him not living in a wall with his tongue cut out. But it's so distracting for me. I can't get past knowing him from comedy. You read Misery when you were, what, in the second grade? No, fifth grade. Fifth grade. Okay, so I saw... People under the stairs when I was like six or seven. I missed everything in there except for the fact that there are monsters that live under the stairs. And I missed 90% of the movie because I thought they were just monsters that were going to kill the kids. Watching it again later, I understood everything else in the movie. It is honestly a movie that I don't want to say you could see it happen because it has happened. People always say, oh, we should have seen this coming. We, sh- we heard noises. We- the mm. dogs always acted weird. It's not going to be as noticeable as, you know, there being cannibals that live in the basement. Some of the race metaphor is is a little muddled. The idea being that these kids that they abduct, they don't want to be trapped, be in prison. Yeah. So they get banished to under the stairs. And these landlords are applying that to the neighborhoods. Just stay where you belong and don't act up. Don't make us angry or we'll have to punish you. I, I feel like the movie really should have pushed that a little harder. Like give it to us a little bit more. I wish it just had a little bit more of maybe that satirical edge or depth. 
And instead, you get the Stephen King mwahaha bad guy nonsense where she drops the N-word. That part in the movie is one of the weakest parts. It's so unnecessary. Yeah. You've already seen what they've done to everyone else. Yeah, you don't need you that. You don't need her. You don't need the punchline at the end that she says the N-word. They, yeah. they really should have pushed it with a little more depth or subtlety. I mean, I know those are almost two opposite things, really. <laughs> but pick one. Give us something. Run with the metaphor. Something. It is a good movie. I like People Under the Stairs. It's just you are clearly making a movie with a race metaphor. That angle, that perspective could have been stronger. Because mommy and daddy don't really interact with too many people in the movie. Oh, it's all in the house. Almost the whole movie is in the house. Yeah. So if they'd had a few shots with maybe them outside, like in the homes and saying, hey, listen, the rent's going to go up because it's going up. I like People Under the Stairs. If you like 90s horror, especially if you like 90s horror, it's one of the standouts. It's good. I can see kind of alongside with Flowers in the Attic. But Flowers in the Attic isn't good. No, but the themes. You have kids that you don't want. Two different extremes on it. You have a very bland, boring movie about like kind of rich white people. Mm. And then you have the people under the stairs. Where it's over the top. Yeah, it's kind of over the top, but it is such a good movie still. The actors playing mother and father, they are the best part of the movie. They are awesome in their cruelty and bizarre meanness. They Mm -hmm. are awful in the most fun way. They make being bad look entertaining, but in a bad way. So you're never rooting for these people. Like, no, man, they're misunderstood. No, they are monsters, and you know they're monsters, like almost from the get-go. You just don't know how bad they are (laughs) until a little later. So to double back then, if you like 90s horror, absolutely, People Under the Stairs. As you can tell by the other films I've eliminated, I am keeping it. So I have my three. Tara, what about you? I've got my three. We might have the same three, actually. Okay, let me hear it. What do you got? (laughs) I've got People Under the Stairs, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and Dirty Dancing. Wow, it's happened again. As for me, now playing at Valley West Cinemas are The People Under the Stairs, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and Dirty Dancing. What do you think? Let us know on Twitter at VWestCinemas or Instagram at ValleyWestCinemas underscore podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please visit Patreon.com slash podcast. And of course, please rate and review. It helps us a lot. I'm your host, Aaron. I was joined today by Tara... Thank you for listening.